Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. All right, take your Bibles out, turn to John chapter 4. Welcome today, so good to have everybody here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us today. Been in a series, Room at the Table. I've enjoyed this series about the inclusiveness of God's kingdom. God wants everybody to come. God's grace is for everybody. God died on the cross for everybody. And so we have been looking at that together. We started out in that very first week. His house would be a house of prayer for all the nations, not just a select few, but for everybody, whosoever will may come. The second week, we looked at a Samaritan. He's called the Good Samaritan, although in that day and age, they weren't considered so good by the Jews. There was a lot of racial hatred that was going on, and yet he becomes the model of what a neighbor should look like or what somebody who has compassion should look like. And so the Good Samaritan, yet he was included. The Syrophoenician woman last week, she was a Gentile outside of the house of Israel, even kind of at first it seems rebuffed by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, should I give take the meat from the, the table and give it to the dogs? And, and yet she presses in with incredible faith and said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. And we see how she is a model of faith for all of us. There's room at the table for everybody. Well, today we're going to look at a story of a lady who has a very desperate need. This lady is going through all kinds of stuff. She's had a a very rough, rocky past. And like many people Jesus ministered to, this lady is anonymous. We never get her name. You're not told who she is. She will forever be known as the woman at the well, but we have no name for her. But unlike many others, she didn't seek Jesus Christ out. Jesus sought her out. He came right to where she was. He came looking for her, and he comes to a small village in Samaria uh, for the express purpose of finding a dysfunctional woman who is plagued by remorse and plagued by grief. So let's stand together. Let's read her story this morning. This, uh, this story unfolds like an incredible drama. I will lay it out to you in three different scenes, and so you'll see each scene as it unfolds, and we will unpack the story of this lady by the well in Samaria. So we'll read this morning just as for time's sake, starting in verse number four. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's important. Remember that. Log that down in your brain. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tried as he was from the journey, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So sixth hour computes to noontime. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for this 
incredible story in the Word of God that you've given us today. And I just pray, Lord, that as we look at this woman, we'll also look deep into our own hearts and our own lives, and we'll learn from her example. And God, I pray that this living water that you talk about in the Word of God will flow very freely this morning all throughout this place. And we thank you for your sweet presence here today, and we give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. God bless you. He had to go through Samaria. Now, let me just set it up for you. There had been a discussion among the Pharisees and the leaders about why Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than John's disciple. All this takes place in the southern region. Go ahead and throw that map up there if you would. Uh, You've got Jerusalem down in the south. Nazareth, he is Jesus of Nazareth. He He is raised in the northern part. The northern region is called Galilee. Separating Judea from Galilee is an area called Samaria. And so uh, the baptisms are going on down in Judea. That is where John the Baptist is. And there becomes a dispute about who's baptizing the most disciples. And so Jesus decides, it's time for me to go up to Galilee. Now, most people, when they went up from Judea into, into Galilee, would bypass Samaria. They hated the Samaritans so much, there was so much racial tension, racial divide, they would not go through that area. It dates all the way back to when the Assyrians uh, took the northern kingdoms into captivity, they repopulated uh, northern Israel with Assyrians, and so there's this mix, this intermarriage starts taking place, idolatry is ushered in, and so the Samaritans are are not considered pure-blood Jews by the Jews who lived in Judea. So what they would do is they would start out here in Jerusalem. They would go to Jericho. Remember we talked about the good Samaritan? He was found on the road down from Jerusalem, higher elevation, down to Jericho, low elevation. They would cross the Jordan River and go all the way up and around and do all they could to avoid that region of Samaria. And so, But Jesus says, I will have no part of your prejudice. I'll go to anybody and I will go anywhere. So he is going to cut right through the heart of Samaria. Now, uh, if you'll look at the next slide with me for just a moment. Jesus, you can see this map here and it's very small, so I have to point it out to you. There's Jerusalem. There's Jericho. He cuts straight up and uh, the writer identifies Sychar as the place he stops. And it's right there where he will find the well and a lady sitting by it. And then he will head on up into Nazareth and Cana. And he did much of his miracles around Capernaum. All this takes place around the Sea of Galilee. Most of his ministry was up in the northern part, by the way. Uh, Less of it was down in Jerusalem and in Judea. And so he goes by and he finds a well there. And another lady sitting by there. And it is known as Jacob's Well. Now the wells are critical to the whole city defining their water. That's their water supply. That's how they live. There had to be wells located right outside the city or around the city. But the fact that this is Jacob's Well makes it a very sacred location. This is a well dug by their patriarch, patriarch, dug by Jacob himself, passed on to Joseph. It is that primary well right in the middle of Israel. It's where Jacob drew water from and his servants dug it out initially. So they considered this not only just a place to get water, but somewhat of a religious holy site because she said this is Jacob's well and later she will say when he begins to talk about living water he will say are you greater than our father Jacob and yes he is 
He is greater than. Just like in John chapter 2, remember that story? When he goes in and he turns the water into wine, Jesus declaring at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, which was in the north, by the way, that, that I am greater than all the ceremonial washing, all the ceremonial cleansing, everything else you will ever go through, I am greater than that. Remember when we talked about the uh, uh, pool of Bethesda and the man who had been laying there for 38 years and Jesus Christ walks into that pool by the sheep gate and what are they doing? Waiting for the waters to be disturbed uh, so that they might go in and find healing. And Jesus declares, I am greater than these waters by the pool of Bethesda. I am the healer. And now he's going to declare, I am greater than all the water, any ceremonial holy site, I am greater than this water. And later he will declare, I am greater than Jerusalem, and I am greater than Mount Gerizim. I am greater. The greater is here. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. I have water that's much superior to this water. This water you will thirst again, but the water that I have to give you, you will never, ever, ever thirst again. I am greater than. Hallelujah. And so we get the scene here. So let me unfold and unpack scene one for you, if I may, at this time. First of all, thirsty. It's all built around thirst. And it's going to start with the thirst of Jesus Christ, but the scene's going to move slowly until you finally see the thirst that this woman has. It's really all about the woman and her thirst. And so look at it, if you would. Now, uh, it's at noontime. This This is very important to the text, noontime. And she's all by herself. She is alone there. By the way, in that climate, in that latitude at that time, noon is probably about the hottest part of the day over there in the Middle East. And so it's noontime. He's thirsty. He wants, and he just simply says, give me a drink. Now with that one line, that one phrase, he cuts through all the prejudice Cuts through all the separation, cuts through all the animosity that is built between Samaritan and Jews for 700 plus years. He cuts through all that with one simple phrase, give me a drink. You'll see later in verse number nine, this lady's blown away. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Give me a drink. He doesn't care who you are, what your background, what your race, what your nationality is. He will come to where you're at. Give me a drink of water. He cuts through it all. Now, if you want to study a little bit about personal evangelism, this is a, just a proof text for how to talk to somebody and how to come at them at their point of interest and where they're at and start where they're at and then begin to lead them into salvation. I want you to notice here, Jesus never had a course in cross-cultural evangelism. He never had a course on reaching Samaritans and how to do that in five simple steps. He just simply starts a conversation, reaches right out to where the lady is, and grabs her attention and says, give me a drink. Now, Jacob's well is estimated to be 150 feet deep. And, of course, the well is, is stagnant water. It's just a well all the way down to the bottom, and, and it's there. Jesus Christ says, though, I am a living water. In other words, moving, flowing, functional, operational waters, always effervescent. And so his waters are moving. And what he is saying is, when he says, I am that living water, he is saying, the age of God's grace has come. That age that the prophets all wrote about, it's here right now. The source of living water is sitting right next to you. 
Isaiah 35 and verse 6, water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the water that Jesus Christ had to give would be refreshing, a flowing stream that would literally come from within, within us. It would flow up. Let's pick up the story. Look, if you would, at verse number 10 and continue in our text here about this water. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, flowing water, life-giving water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks though this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, listen, we always look on the outside to find our happiness. Man looks from without himself to find a source of joy, peace, happiness, whatever, just like this lady had to come to a well outside of herself to find the answer to life, to find her happiness, to, to, to quench her thirst. But as a child of God, we have Christ within us, the hope of glory. So I don't have to look outside of myself to find my peace, to find my contentment, to find my joy. I've got Christ within me now. He is the hope of glory. John 7 says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Therefore, my joy as a child of God is not dependent on my circumstances. It doesn't depend on what's going on around me. However chaotic that may be, however stressful at times life can get, however hurtful life can be, I've got Christ within. And he can take me through anything. So I look to him for my joy and my peace and my satisfaction. The water the Lord is giving is satisfying. When he describes it as living water, you'll never thirst again. It means it satisfies. It totally quenches my deepest needs. I won't thirst for this world anymore. I won't hunger for this world anymore because I have the living water in Christ Jesus. It is eternal. He says, if you drink the water I got, you will never, ever thirst again. It will go on and on and on. This lady had to come to Jacob's well every day, and for her, she's coming at the hottest part of the day. But the living water of God's grace will never, ever run dry. It will literally quench my thirst for all eternity. Jesus is all I need. We say that. We sing that song, but do we really believe it? Do we really live like it? Isaiah 12, 3, another reference to the wells of life. He says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And what you have in this opening narrative is Jesus starts out and uh, he's very thirsty. His lips are dry, his lips are parched, he's looking for something to drink. But by the time you get to the next 10 verses, you begin to see it's really this woman who is thirsty. She's thirsting for something that will really satisfy her life. Look at verse number 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water 
so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I think the second scene, you see something else about this lady. Not only is she thirsty, but she's lonely. You get a lady who's very, very lonely. Let's pick it up with verse number 16, and you begin to see this unfold. He said, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you have said you have no husband. The fact is you've had five, count them, five husbands. Elizabeth Taylor, I don't know how many Elizabeth had, but anyway. (laughs) And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You know, there's, there's a reason there. There's a reason in Scripture she's there at the hottest time of the day. The time when no other women would come to the well. They would come early in the morning and draw their water. They would come just at the end of the day to draw water at the coolest times of the day. They'd get their water in the morning to get them through the day. Then they'd get their water for cleansing, bathing, ceremonial, and and all that for the end of the day. And, And she is there at the hottest because she prefers the heat of the day to the scalding tongues of the village gossips. I mean, she is the object of conversation at Sychar. Five husbands. She's probably married at some time or another, most of the other women's husbands at one time or another. Jesus takes his spiritual scalpel and cuts right to the heart of her soul with this statement, go call thy husband. First he says, give me a drink. Next he says, go call thy husbands. You know, that, that's the one thing she always hated about relationships. About the time you get close to somebody, they start getting personal. And they ask you those very hard questions. And now, right now, he's prying into her past, and all these memories are surfacing and coming to the forefront that she had hoped would remain buried. She was trying to deny her past and forget about her past, and now Christ dredges it all back up. Go call thy husband. I can imagine in that moment her mind flashes back to the age of innocence when she went around Mount Gerizim and the vineyards there and she found her lover and she was a first love and and she was so excited to finally find Mr. Wright. This is the one that's going to answer all her hopes and dreams and she finds Mr. Wright and she comes home as a loving bride. But perhaps there came a growing coldness in their relationship leading to alienation And dislike, maybe even leading to infidelity. I want to tell you something. Nobody, nobody who gets married starts out with the intention that this is temporary. You walk down the altar, you get a preacher, you find a justice of the peace, you go somewhere, and you get married. You don't enter into that kind of relationship. You don't marriage and sign the documents with the idea that this is only a temporary solution. Maybe she couldn't fully understand her culture, a culture that says in in this society that a man could divorce you for any reason. So if you couldn't cook, you're out of here. You burn the dinner, I've had enough of that, and I'm moving on to number two. You couldn't keep the house clean. You walk in, there's dirt everywhere. Ah, Enough of you, I'm divorcing you. Uh, You can't have boys, you can't have children. Maybe the lady was infertile. 
I don't know what her problem was. I don't know why she got bounced around so much, but you could divorce somebody for any single reason. She's lived with a passing parade of men, technically five, and she's living with number six, and they just didn't even bother to sign the documents anymore. She belongs to no man, but has been the property of five. Like many of us, she is a person with a flawed past. She has secret sins and hidden failures. Things in her past she doesn't want anyone else to know. Things that she has kept buried, things that she has kept hidden. And like us, she learns that even though she may deny her past, she cannot escape her past. It's always there. I don't care what you've done. I don't care that secret that nobody else knows about. No one else has seen that chapter in your life you'd like to forget. Even though we deny it and try to run from it, we can't escape it. It always comes up. The memories are there. They haunt us. Uh, Their persistent painfulness is always just below the surface. And so she lives with this shame of failure, this shame of now immorality, this shame of self-deception. She is very, very flawed. She wishes she should just go back and change it. If I just could get a time machine and go back and, and change it, I would. But I've made those mistakes and it's done and it's over and this is where I find myself. I want to tell you, I believe this Samaritan woman represents the restlessness of our age like no other person in Scripture. She represents our society in America today. Desperate, searching, looking, uh, restless, looking for some sense of belonging. And what happens is we go from one manipulative relationship to another. And we think, I'll be happy if I find the next man, the next girlfriend, the next buddy, the next friend, the next party, the next activity, the next whatever, somehow that will make me happy. Hoping some new man will work out better than the last. Our generation today is known for sophistication in sexual matters, office affairs, live-in relationships, perversion, and pornography. We say in America today we are sexually free and permissive when all the time we are in bondage to our lust, our loneliness, and our emptiness. It is a bondage. It will chain you up. It will bind you down. The inner turmoil is raging inside of her heart and her spirit right now and something's going on and she wants to be different but she doubts it will ever happen in her life. She longs for meaningful friendships. She longs for some kind of meaningful relationship but she's afraid to let anybody get close because she's been hurt so many times and so the relationships are always from this point on going to be very, very superficial. Don't get close to me because you'll know how messed up I really am. Don't get close to me because you'll know all about my neuroses and my problems and my pain and my past and my guilt and my junk and my stuff. And so somehow we have got to keep everybody at bay for fear of them finding out. Don't let them get too close. Is there any hope for her? And maybe to get more direct, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for us today? There is only hope if we'll come clean with 
ourselves before God. We can hide it from everybody else, but there's got to come that point of reckoning where we say, go call thy husband, deal with your past, deal with your issues, and give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like we took communion earlier today, his blood is great enough to take care of all of our junk and all of our mess and all of our stuff. And we are messed up people. And sometimes we wince when the Lord gets in real close to us and we get in those close quarters, it's like when you have a broken arm and the doctor wants to touch it and reset it. What do we do? We pull back. We recoil. We say, don't touch that wound. Don't touch that hurt. But unless we allow him to touch it, that bone will never be straightened and that bone will never, ever mend. And so we've got to go call our husband and, and go fix that broken relationship and go deal with our past junk and stuff and make it right. Right. Jesus already knew. You know, Jesus knew so much about her and about us. The amazing thing is he's, he's by a well, and he says, go call thy husband. She says, you know, I, I can't right now. And you know what? The truth is you can't because you've had five, and now you're living with somebody. How does Jesus know that? Now, I want to tell you to th- that, that knowledge, that thought, at first of all, is terrifying Because she thinks if Jesus knows, now he will reject me, now he will condemn me, now he will cast me off. But it also becomes very liberating because when finally we confess to the Lord and we get it all out, we found out that in him is grace and forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and he makes it better. Jesus already knows the worst about her. He already knows the worst about us. Why pretend? Why hide it? Why continue to to cover it over again and again and again? Why be something we're not? But the good news is her shame gives way to the living water. And now there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ. There is no more rejection. Uh, There is only healing and forgiveness. There is room at the table for a lady who has a messed up past. And the message this morning is no matter how messed up your past may be, no matter how you have goofed things up, I want to tell you, God has room at his table at grace for you. Come to the fountain of life, it's Jesus Christ, and there we find forgiveness, and it's there we find cleansing, it's there we find healing and redemption. So we see this lady, she's thirsty for reality. She's lonely. She's been talked about for years now. The last thing we see is she's very confused, confused. And we get that in the next passage, the next portion of the scripture, And look at verse number 19. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, what do we do when when someone gets really close and we get nervous? We change the subject. We blame somebody else. We cast off. It's their fault. It's this reason. It's that reason. We, 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 We change the dialogue. And basically, she, when she finds out he is a prophet, knows everything about her, she says, by the way, where do you go to church? Right? That's kind of vague and out there and, and not real. And so she says that. We worship on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
I'm greater than Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know you're the Messiah, that the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, now right away you notice something. This lady would rather debate scripture or debate religion than deal with her emptiness. They want to deal with her problems, her real hurt and her real pain. Or we talk about what someone else said wrong or did to us instead of becoming vulnerable and opening up. But she still had hope that one day there would be a coming Messiah. And she alludes to that. They were still talking Samaria. Even though they're confused, even though they're messed up, they still believe the promises of the, of the Old Testament prophets. One day, Messiah would come. Jesus reveals her spiritual confusion. She didn't know who she was worshiping. She didn't know where the proper place was to worship. She didn't even know how to worship God. She is confused and messed up in her religion. She's proud of Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is, it was a mountain not too far from Sychar. It is the mountain where Abraham and Jacob both built altars on Mount Gerizim, up, up in that region, up in that area. The Samaritans construct a temple on top of Mount Gerizim, so they have their own temple where they can go and worship God. But the loyalty of every Jew is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still their holy city. It is still where the temple, Solomon's temple, is located. But on a deeper level, this woman is looking for the right altar. We sang, come to the altar. And what she's really saying is, where can I find forgiveness? Where can I find grace? Where is the right altar? She would need a priest who, she, who would take her sins to God. Where can I find that priest? In Jerusalem, on Mount Gerizim. Who will take my sins to God for me? She needs a sacrifice. Where can I find the sacrifice? Where can the blood be spilt? Where can I get this guilt that I can't get rid of? Where can it be taken away out of my life? But just as Jacob's well would no longer satisfy her thirst, the old institutions of worship, Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem, Jesus says, are passing away. They are no longer valid anymore. Forgiveness and worship is found through a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now my great high priest. He is now my sacrifice. He offered up his own blood. He has presented it now before the Holy of Holies. He is the temple of the living God. And when he came, he ushered in that new age of grace. And so the good news is, where can I worship God? It's not faith assembly of God. It's not any other church in the neighborhood. It is in our heart. It's in our spirit because I can only worship God in truth and in spirit. It is not about brick and mortar anymore. It is about the presence of the living God. I have the great high priest with me and in me. He's ever liveth to make intercession for me. His sacrifice has already made the way and paid the price. He 
He says, you really want to know how to worship? Let me tell you how to worship. You worship God in truth and in spirit. What does that mean? Well, first of all, truth. You need to know who you worship. You don't even know who you're worshiping. Jesus not only reveals truth, not only does he come and expose truth and open up truth, but Jesus Christ himself is truth. Not only does he open up the word of God, this written word to our hearts and lives, he is the living word. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to worship God is through truth, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me share something with you. While this table is inclusive to everybody, that anybody can come to God's grace and be saved and forgiven, not everybody can go into the presence of God without first coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me talk to you about something. When, when the Hindus say, aren't we just all worshiping God even though they have millions of gods? And you're worshiping in your way and we worship in our way. They're not worshiping God because God can only be worshiped in truth. Therefore, anything else is just vain repetitions. When the Muslims say, we are worshiping the same God you worship, no, they're not. Because even though they may bow down five times a day, you can only worship God in spirit and in truth. So they're bypassing truth. And you can't get to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When he was crucified, when he hung on the cross, the Bible says the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy place was ripped in two from the very top all the way down to the bottom. Thus he made access for any one of us to come into the throne of grace and find help and mercy. When he ascended to the Father, the Bible tells us that he offered up his own blood for our sacrifice. And now... Through Christ our high priest, I have boldness to enter and worship Father God, Abba God. The second thing he says, it must be done in spirit. Now, spirit does not refer to my emotions. When he says you worship God in truth and in spirit doesn't mean clapping hands, raising hands, bowing down, silence, whatever. All these things are good. All these things are valid. I worship God with my entire being, and so my emotions are engaged, and that's okay, and that's awesome, and I I like to enter in physically and worship God. But that's not what it means right here. His spirit comes down and breathes life into my spirit. And until that happens, I can't worship God. He says, now I am dead, and he said, we were dead in trespasses and sin." But when I say, Jesus, I need you come into my life, he breathes life into my spirit, and now I can worship him with my spirit. Because God is spirit. He makes us sons of God, and now I can worship Abba, Father. He tells us in Romans chapter 8 that now we are no longer slaves. Now we are sons of the Most High God, and his spirit cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy God, I can really worship you because I found you and you found me. Therefore, I can. when you're born again, until you are born again, it is impossible, it is impossible 
to worship God in spirit and in truth. In verse 26, he, he reveals his identity. She says, you know what? We're looking for Messiah. We believe he's coming one day. Verse 26, Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I am he. I am he. It is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 3 when God appears to Moses at the burning bush. And remember, Moses says, when I go to Israel, who shall I say is sending me? He simply says, Yahweh. Yahweh. Translated, I am. I am the eternally existent God. I am from the beginning. I will be till the end. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the always eternally existent God. I am. That was his name that the Jews knew. Now he reveals himself to this lady. We're looking for Messiah. We're believing that he's coming one day. And, and, and you know anything about him? And he simply says, I am he. And in that moment, the glory of God comes down and surrounds a well. And that becomes holy ground because Jesus Christ is there. He is the I am Yahweh God. And what does she do? She does what any one of us would have done. She drops her water pot and takes off. She goes running back into that village. I got to get back. I got to tell all those former husbands. I got to tell all those ladies that are out there talking about me. I got to tell them I have found the I am God. Messiah has come. She leaves her water pot behind. When you have a divine encounter with God, your water pots won't matter a whole lot anymore because you found the source of living water. You found your fountain of life, your source of joy. Leave it behind and go into the village and tell them, I found the I am God. Come and see a man that told me everything I've ever done. And he still accepted me. He still pulled back the chair. He still said, sit at my table. Hallelujah. She goes back. There's still room at God's table today for every thirsty, lonely, confused person. And he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. For the first time, this Samaritan is at peace. Her enemies have been defeated. The accusing voices have been stilled in her brain and her heart. And in their place, there's a quiet assurance that now I am finally loved. Now I am accepted. Her past could no longer blackmail her. It had already been exposed to the light of his loving acceptance, and she has been forgiven. Here's the good news. What Jesus did for her, this nameless woman by a well in the hottest part of the day, he can do for any one of you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I, uh, I love our stories. We've had a story every week. Man, it just, it, it, it just ripped my heart out, and it just it, it draw us in, and we got a great one today. Go ahead and roll it for you. She goes back. There's still room at God's table today for every thirsty, lonely, confused person. And he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. For the first time, this Samaritan is at peace. Her enemies have been defeated. The accusing voices have been stilled in her brain and her heart. 
And in their place, there's a quiet assurance that now I am finally loved. Now I am accepted. Her past could no longer blackmail her. It had already been exposed to the light of his loving acceptance. And she has been forgiven. Here's the good news. What Jesus did for her, this nameless woman by a well in the hottest part of the day, he can do for any one of you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I, uh, I love our stories. I've had a story every week. Man, it just, it, it just ripped my heart out, and it just it draw us in, and we got a great one today. Go ahead and roll it for you. I was born into brokenness. Uh, my parents actually divorced, uh, um, were in the middle of a divorce when I was uh, born. And so I didn't really know my father. Um, he lived in the same town as us, but he did not want to have a relationship with me. And so he never really instilled in me an identity as his daughter. In fact, at times he would tell people that I wasn't even his daughter. So I kind of grew up with this brokenness inside of me and this longing um, from that abandonment and that rejection that I felt from my earthly father. I wasn't quite sure what to fill that with, so I looked um, to a lot of different things, my talents, uh, schoolwork, anything that I could find. Um, But one day, when I was about eight or nine years old, I stumbled across pornography. And I didn't quite know what I was watching, but I knew that I liked how it made me feel inside. It made me feel wanted, and it made me feel loved. And so I continued to watch it. Um, I didn't tell anybody that I was watching it, but I continued to find time to indulge in it and and get a little more involved in it. And when I couldn't find time to watch it, I would even take time to fantasize myself and and create these places in my own mind um, where I could go and feel loved and accepted and not feel so rejected. When I went to college, I kind of decided that I wanted to follow Jesus a little more closely. So while I wasn't watching it, I was still suffering from the lingering effects of what it had done to my mind and how it was causing me to interact with other human beings. I found myself expecting people to please me at all times, and, and I thought that's what they should do. Um, so I found that I was becoming very angry with people, and I was always trying to break off relationship with people when they didn't do what I thought they should do. I was trying to be the person that I had seen in those videos and the person that I had written about in my fantasies instead of being the child of God that I knew I could be and should be. I had fractured every relationship in my life at that time. I really felt like I hit rock bottom. Everything had come crashing down on me and I had no one, and I had nothing. Everything that I had ever used to establish my identity had been stripped away from me. My job, I lost my job, I lost my ministry, I lost my friendship and my family. I even wrecked my car during this time, which was the only possession I actually had. So I just really felt like I was being stripped of everything that I had been used to identify myself. I had been using to identify myself. 
It was during this time that I realized that I really needed to depend on Jesus. I felt like he was beckoning me as my savior to come back to him. I decided that that's what I needed. So I decided to join Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery was an incredibly difficult journey for me, but I really felt that I changed my entire life because of the things that I learned there and the things um, that I learned not just about myself, but about Jesus and about God as my Heavenly Father. I also learned how Jesus could take anything that had happened to me and make it beautiful. And that's what he did. I repaired so many relationships because I made amends. I listed my wrongdoings to others and I asked them for forgiveness. Most of all, I forgave myself along with my father for being human and for making mistakes. And forgiveness is probably the one thing that freed me most from the burdens that I had been feeling. If I could offer any encouragement to anyone out there today, it would be that Jesus loves you no matter where you are. But he doesn't just love you, he wants to save you. He wants to rescue you from the darkness that you're facing. And if you're out there and you're struggling with something and you think no one else could possibly be struggling with this, I'm here to tell you that's not true. For years, I believed I was the only woman who was a Christian who struggled with pornography and sexual sin, but I wasn't. And when I was willing to come out of the darkness and into the light, I was introduced to many women who had walked in my shoes and who have helped mentor and guide me um, to the place where I am today. So I just encourage you to step out of darkness and into light and allow Jesus to cleanse you and to forgive you because you are his child and he wants you to walk in the identity that he's created for you, not the identity that you've created for yourself. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We offer a Celebrate Recovery group. We offer some groups that are specifically designed around pornography and how to deal with that. So those are available. Just call the church office. Keep it buried. We keep it hidden. We cover it up. But God says, bring it to me. I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. I'll give you life. Bow your heads and close your eyes. This lady could have been that woman at the well. Messed up relationships. But found God's grace. Doing great. Part of our church. He can do it for you. What he did for this lady 2,000 years ago of Sychar. What he did for her. He can do for you. Lord, I thank you for your sweet presence here today. Pray for anyone here who may not know you right now as Lord and Savior that this morning they'll come to you and you'll forgive them and you'll cleanse them and they'll find life and they'll find that living water. They'll, they'll quit going to the wells of this world, the cisterns of this world and where they find only emptiness, but God, they'll turn to you. And so minister your grace in the house today, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org 
for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.